This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So you've hit play on this podcast. Now what? Are you driving? Cooking? Supposed to be studying? Maybe just hanging out? How long is it going to be before you look at your smartphone? Minutes? Seconds? Like most of us, you're probably on social media, and why not? It's great! It helps you to stay connected. You can talk to your friends. You can get all the information you need. But I have a question for you. Do you also feel anxious? This week, we're going to look at the dangers of social media and why we have become obsessed with going online. We're also going to find out how that affects your mental health. And in our SAS class, we're going to find out how social media can worsen our fears of missing out. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to reveal why likes aren't everything when it comes to your well-being. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Back in 1968, the great Andy Warhol proclaimed that in the future, everyone would be world famous for 15 minutes. It was meant as a comment on how the days in which the elite few got their fame would eventually be coming to an end. Everybody would have a chance to become famous. He was right, kind of. Today, we live in a world in which every person has a voice and has a chance to become famous. But that idea of fame has changed. It's less about being Marilyn Monroe and more about getting attention and appreciation from our peers. This is social media. And the effect of it on us has been a great concern for well over a decade and has spawned a new brand of research into the mental effects of being online. Our first guest has been exploring the role of the individual in organizations, including social media. Her results have shed light on how being online can benefit us and also how it can do unimaginable harm. It all comes down to our identity. Her name is Stephanie Daly, and she is an assistant professor of communication studies at Texas State University. What is social media? Great question to start off with. I think it's important to have kind of a baseline understanding here. Usually when people hear the term social media, they think of different platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And that's because most of us are using social media. About 70% of people in the U.S. and Canada reportedly use social media. But that doesn't take us very far. If you're a scholar like me, we can't just call social media different platforms. We have to have a more all-encompassing view, something that unites different types of social media so that when a new app emerges, which could happen tomorrow probably, we'll have some general sense of whether or not to consider it or count it part of social media. In my research, I define social media as having three basic things. First, they create and maintain relationships. They create and share their own content. 
and they allow people to make their social networks or connections observable to others. What's interesting about the definition of social media or that particular definition is that it's all about exchanging information, creating common values and sharing our identity, which is what my discipline communication is all about. And what is it about identity that is so important that it requires research? I think there's a lot of things about identity. I study identity in a lot of different contexts, not just social media. So my answer is always that it's very important in every context. But I think social media is unique in in looking at identity because it's crucial for a lot of different things that people do on social media. So identity is crucial to posting content. It's crucial to consuming content. And then reacting to content happens differently based on our identity. So I have a few examples that kind of come to mind for each of those. So first, when we post content, identity is a huge part of that. One of my favorite examples of, of us posting content is my research about agency social media writers. So these are folks who are paid to post social content for organizations that they're not working in. So to explain, if I were an agency or freelance social media writer, I might be sitting here in my office in Austin, Texas, but I'm posting social media content for a mom and pop diner that's in Pennsylvania that I've never been to, right? And so we interviewed people that did this for work and we asked them about their identity. And about 80% of those writers said that they viewed their self-concept as overlapping in some way with the group or organization they were writing content for. So for example, some writers really identified with a type of product like cars or an industry like plumbing, whereas others took pride and they felt like they were part of that organization that they were writing for. One of my favorite parts of the study was that some people talked about creating a fake sense of attachment or a fake identity, pretending to be someone that cared a whole lot about that organization. That tells me that the process of posting content is very tied to our identity. So in addition to posting, I think identity is also a huge part of how we consume social media as well. So we know both anecdotally and through research that people strategically craft this online persona, optimizing themselves through careful impression management. I'm much more likely, for example, to post a picture of my toddler and my three nature when they're smiling and happy versus having a tantrum, even though you can probably guess which happens more often. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But there's this really interesting shift happening on social media right now. and Data is showing this dramatic rise in the popularity of stories. So these are posts, if you're not familiar, that disappear after 24 hours. And across the Facebook family of apps, so that includes Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, about a billion people post stories a day. And so we could talk about there's a lot of reasons or theories that might explain that uptick, but I think identity is a huge reason why. Because stories are a little different, right? Instead of creating that perfect online persona and cultivating and crafting that post, stories are a little bit more informal. They're kind of a less curated version of our identity because they evaporate the next day. And so I think people are so drawn to watching stories and we see this increased popularity because they allow us to see a little bit more of their realness or the backstage behind people's identities. So that's another interesting example of the importance of identity. And that scares me a little because when Mm -hmm. I'm involved in creating a story, I'm fully into it. I love my characters. I love the imagery, all of that. If all of a sudden that just goes away, even if I got some great feedback or somebody loved it, I'm going to want to feel that again. Can this need become all-encompassing? Yeah, that's an interesting example. And I think, I think you're right. It's interesting that 
platforms are building in ways for those stories to become more permanent. So Instagram, for example, has a feature where you can save a story so that maybe you did get those positive reactions and it did reinforce your self-concept in a way that you liked. You could incorporate that into your more permanent identity on social media, for example. So it's interesting that they're, that platforms are maybe picking up on that. But it is certain, certainly true that that can become all-encompassing and that need for those positive reinforcements and the validation of your identity can become addicting to a certain extent. There's a concept that our research explores called social media addiction, and it contains three attributes. So it's first about that you're very concerned about social media. The second attribute is that you have a strong motivation to use social media. And then the third really pivotal component of social media addiction is that you're allocating so much time to social media that it interferes with other parts of your life, including social events, going to school or work, or messing with, you know, close connections with others or your general well-being. So the key point there is that those addicted to social media continue to use social media, even if it results in those undesirable consequences, like they're losing sleep or having interpersonal conflicts, they still feel the need to use it. But I think that, again, identity can play into a big part of creating that need. I remember sitting in the green room for an interview I was going to do, and I saw this couple, this married couple sitting there in two different chairs, and they were on their phones. And I was wondering why they weren't talking to each other, so I simply asked. And what they told me was that they were talking to each other through direct messaging on Twitter. What, why are you doing that? Because you're right there looking at one another and you're not communicating. I don't get it. Is this something that social media addiction can lead to, whereby we essentially only communicate to the world through our phones as opposed through face-to-face? It's sad because I think we see a lot of cartoons and memes about that very example when in reality it happens more often than I think we'd like to admit. It's interesting because there's kids now, there's, there's an interesting study about, I read a lot of stuff about children and social media because I have children and I'm nervous for them. It was a study that basically wanted to show how our nonverbal behavior and our nonverbal communication is being hijacked or weakened by social media. And they took kids to a camp for, I can't remember exactly how long it was, but let's say a week or so. And they took all their social media devices away and it was a controlled experiment. So the other group of kids had their social media and then they measured some basic nonverbal behaviors, communication behaviors of the kids afterwards. And there was a significant difference between the kids just in that short amount of time that did not have access to social media and their phones. They were more communicative and more non-verbally aware. It's scary to look at the effect over time that might be having on not just our kids, but adults and relationships and how it can be influencing our behavior with others. And as a communication professor, you look at how people communicate with one another. Do you think that social media is impairing not just children, but everybody? I do. I do think it's, it's affecting all of us. A lot of times, I think because I teach social media and because I work in a university, some of the folks I talk with are kind of think of social media only as something that young people do. But in reality, we know from the statistics that a lot of adults are using social media. So it's not just something that's affecting one age group or um, one population of, of people. But I don't want the picture to be too bleak all the time. So there are definitely positive outcomes of using social media. And there's research that shows Good things that come from social media just have to be used in the right way and in the right moderation. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We have heard that social media isn't only addictive, but also can play a role in the development of loneliness and depression. But did you know that we could one day be able to use social media as a diagnostics tool to identify people who need help? It makes sense. After all, research has shown that people who are in the midst of these problems tend to act in similar ways on different social media platforms. They convey negative behaviors. They share their risky behaviors. And they even have a color palette, sharing more blues and grays in their Instagram posts. The question is, can there be enough of a similarity amongst these people to be able to diagnose troubles? Last year, Stephanie Daly took that question on, and her results reveal that we may yet be able to find a use for social media and mental health in the future. Why would you explore a link between social media and depression? There is a complex relationship that studies have started to explore. We know that there are certain behaviors that happen in people with, without depression and with depression. So, for example, there's been prior studies that show that social media users who are diagnosed with depression are more likely to compare themselves to others, share risky behavior, do things like post negative content and use different pronouns, like more first-person singular pronouns. There were a lot of different studies looking at those different things, and a lot of the research was only focusing on one platform, so just Facebook primarily. And so we wanted to take a really large picture, a systematic view, to identify which of these social media behaviors was related to major depressive disorder, and we wanted to look particularly at young adults. So how did you conduct the research? We brought in a team of communication scholars like myself who study social media and communication behaviors and psychologists who are experts in well-being and mental health. And as I mentioned, we focused on millennials. So we set people who were born between 1980 and 2000 because that population has been raised in a more digital age than other generations. And we thought they might use social media slightly differently. So we sent a survey and 500, about 500 undergraduate students took the survey about their social media behaviors across four different platforms. And we asked them a series of demographic items, questions about how they were using social media, and they also took a validated measure of major depressive disorder. So what did you find when you got the results back? People with major depressive disorder were more likely to do a couple of things. So they were more likely to score significantly higher when we asked them about social media addiction. They were also more likely to be bothered if they were tagged in unflattering pictures and less likely to post pictures of themselves that included others along with them. And then lastly, they were more likely to compare themselves with others who they thought were better off than themselves. And so kind of in a nutshell, our study really supports that increased social media addiction and upward social comparisons are more prevalent in individuals with major depressive disorder. 
Was there any particular platform that was a little bit more indicative than, say, any of the others? No, we really, um, I think for a couple of them, that's a great question. There were a couple of them that were slightly more correlated, but overall nothing so significant um, or with enough power to really say, you know, we need to focus on this one platform or we need to not be, not be concerned about a different platform. It opens up a huge, huge potential to be able to identify triggers or warning signs that someone may be suffering. It becomes very difficult to develop something that would end up in a DSM diagnostics criterion. Yes, I think you hit the nail on the head. And I'm glad you asked about warning signs or triggers because I think even though it is difficult to pinpoint exactly what might lead someone down this path, it is helpful for for listeners and for people to just understand that there are ways to kind of proactively assess your own social media behaviors and make adjustments based on our research. So, for example, if you find that social media is interfering with your daily activities or that you're having conflicts with others because of social media, then that's a good sign to do some self-reflection. Or if you find yourself following, you know, it's very common to follow celebrities or follow, I love to cook and I love to decorate, so I follow a lot of bloggers and things like that on social media. But if you're constantly focusing on people that are quote-unquote better off than you, and if you find yourself comparing yourself to those people, then it's important to change your behaviors, maybe not follow some of those people. And then also remember, you have control over how much time you spend on social media. So possible if you feel like you are experiencing tendencies of addiction, then you can delete the app from your phone, maybe just have it on your computer. Like I said, because there are benefits to social media. We don't need to eliminate it completely, but just be aware. We now have apps that tell us when we should and should not be on our phones or on social media. What do you think about those? Yes, yes. I think those can be really useful. I think so often the clock goes by and time is ticking and we don't realize how long it's been since we've been on social media because obviously the developers have created ways to really engage us. And for example, with stories, like we know people also are fascinated by stories because we all have the fear of missing out, right? They disappear. So we have to see them or else we're going to miss it. And so I think just being reminded of how long you've spent on an application can be really helpful. And what about just getting off social media altogether for therapy or maybe just for helping someone to be able to cope with something that's in their real life as opposed to their online life? Hmm. Yeah, I, it's hard to tell someone to completely stop using it. I'm not a psychologist, but I do know from the research that there, there, is good, there are good things about social media, right? There are benefits. So I think that in moderation, it can, be, it can be a good thing. And we have to remember, too, that our study was not causal. So we can't say that being on social media causes depression. We didn't measure this over time. And you know, most studies about social media are not controlled experiments. So we're just talking about associations here. So I think completely stopping social media is a little drastic, but I think definitely being, being self-aware and being cognizant of, of the research and some of the dangers of social media is wise. Do you think that yeah. we may be able to use social media down the road as a means of being able to help diagnose depression and other mental health disorders? I think that would be so cool. I would, I would love to see that. And I think there is the possibility as our understanding of social media grows 
And as our knowledge and ability to use artificial intelligence and data to track people's behaviors on social media, because it's just so complex. There's so many different things you could do on a platform. But the more we can capture data that explains that behavior, I'd love to see the possibility of being able to, to help diagnose and help, help people who are suffering. It's Ask Class time, and today we're going to look at one of the reasons people tend to be online constantly. It's the fear of missing out, also known as FOMO. This isn't a new concept in social communication. Research from the 1990s revealed people felt the same thing about telephone calls. FOMO, believe it or not, is even the basis for telemarketing. You don't want to miss out on that call. Our guest teacher has been looking at FOMO and how it affects our health and well-being, especially when it comes to social media. She is Marina Milievskaya, and she is an assistant professor at Carleton University. What is FOMO? So define as fear of missing out, the idea that there's something else you could be doing or another choice you could be making that is better than you currently are or that other people are having some experiences from which you're absent or you're missing out. But I thought we would be just happy doing what we're doing. (laughs) Why do people experience this? I think people generally want to maximize their opportunities and kind of maximize, you know, make sure that whatever they're doing is the best option. And as there are more and more options, there's also this possibility of regret. That's what if you're making the wrong choice? What if there's something better out there? I imagine social media can probably lead to some serious FOMO then. That's the interesting thing with social media is that people could have FOMO without social media. And you can feel like you're missing out if you overhear coworkers talking about a party or if you're reading in a newspaper about a festival in town. All that happens without social media. But what social media can do is make you aware uh, of these experiences on which you may be missing out. So on social media, you're often bombarded with notifications of different events and experiences others are having. So it's much easier to know about all these other choices. When I was a teenager in the 80s, I'd remember being so jealous of people who got to go see the Bruce Springsteen or the U2 concert. I guess that, in a way, is now just being translated into a digital format, even though it's the same feeling. It's just that now I'm jealous about someone who's in San Diego at Comic-Con as opposed to my classmate at school. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, you know, that's a really great example of FOMO being around before social media, just much more kind of likely to see all these possible experiences that others are having. So let's talk about the health factors associated with FOMO. Has any research been done and are there any consequences? There's some research documenting the co-occurrence in FOMO of FOMO and health issues. So people who report greater FOMO also report greater depression, uh, anxiety, and more physical symptoms. The direction is sometimes not clear. So is it experiencing FOMO that makes you feel that way, or people who are more anxious or depressed then go off and feel more FOMO? And in my own research, we did look at experiences of FOMO throughout the day. We asked people um, for a week throughout the day, multiple times, you know, how are you feeling right now? Are you experiencing um, basically, are you, is there something your peers or friends are doing that you feel like you are missing out on? And then we looked at how they're feeling in the evenings and also across the semester. This was with the university students. And then what we found is that on days when people reported more FOMO, 
kind of in the mo- in those moments when we contacted them, those evenings they reported more feeling more negative, so more negative affect. They reported more fatigue and also more physical symptoms. And then across the semester, those who reported more FOMO during that initial week had more stress and poor sleep. And that's taking account the baseline reports of sleep and uh, stress, suggesting that it is over time uh, experiencing more FOMO is related to kind of more problems. Of course, none of this research is experimental, so it's hard to draw some of these definitive conclusions about FOMO leading to the problems, uh, but there are definitely links out there. When I'm feeling like I am missing out on something, I always tend to go back to social media or to whatever it is that is the source. It sometimes could be just, you know, television. And I just constantly am trying to find some way of being able to make myself feel better simply because I'm not there. In a way, I guess that's an obsession, which possibly could eventually turn into something like depression. So perhaps FOMO is feeding as opposed to being the cause or the consequence. That's definitely a possibility, yeah. I think there's research kind of being conducted and there's still ongoing research trying to tease that apart a little more and trying to understand what's actually going on. But I don't think right now there's a definitive clear picture yet. So the feeling of FOMO is a personal perspective. In other words, we cannot generalize FOMO to a larger community. It really comes down to each individual person. Yeah, definitely. I think it's something that could have two people seeing something, a notification about the same event, for example, and uh, interpreting it very differently or thinking about it very differently with one person's thinking, oh, it, it looks like fun. It seems more fun than what I'm doing. Maybe I'm missing out. And another person kind of shrugging it off and not paying it much attention. Well, you're the FOMO expert, so I'm going to put you on the spot. Is there anything we can do about it? I was going to ask, do we log off of social media? But if we have FOMO in our regular lives, how do we, how do we avoid that fear of missing out? How do we stay away from being green with envy or anything like that? Well, I think it's uh, part of it could be trying to reinterpret the experience that others are having and that you're having. You know, when you're tallying up the pros and cons of all the different options, highlighting the positives of what you're currently doing, being aware of, you know, trying to find the good things in what you're doing and why maybe that is the best thing for you. Uh, And maybe be more realistic about what the alternative feels like. Um, Maybe those people aren't having as good a time as you think they are. (laughs) I'm sorry. I just, all I could think about was just think positive as being the way of reducing FOMO. I don't think it's about thinking positive so much as about being more realistic. A lot of times, and especially with social media, this is so easy. We see other, because uh, you paint the most positive picture of something else. So when you look at other people's experiences on social media, you see just the positive. You know, you're not aware that that person at Comic-Con has been standing in a line for however many hours and is being squished and is maybe really hot and uncomfortable. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, right? You're only thinking about the positive things because that's what they're showing you out there. So kind of realizing or thinking more deeply about what those experiences are actually like. Well, that's it for this week's Sascast. I hope it has given you a reason to log off a little more often. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening, even though we are a part of social media, because your support has been overwhelming. We want to show our gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show in the form of new episodes. 
Send me a tweet at J.A. Tetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.